Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. I like to refer to athletes as reluctant media people. First and foremost, their goal is to dominate their sport. But with success comes attention, and with attention comes endorsements, speaking engagements, press conferences, and other media responsibilities. And this pretty much summarizes today's guest, Joel Demby. A former number one ranked wheelchair tennis player in Canada, Joel's represented his country at numerous tournaments across the globe, notably the 2012 Paralympics in London and the 2015 Para Pan Am Games in Toronto, where he brought home the bronze medal in front of a hometown crowd. He recently retired from competition and sits down with us today to chat about what it's like starting off as an athlete and then growing into his own personal brand. Thanks for having me. It's good to reconnect. We haven't seen each other in so long. I know. Uh, you've had quite the illustrious, we'll say, last seven or eight years, per se. Thank you. I, I wanted to start with uh, where you are right now. Technically speaking, you are a retired athlete. You're, you're what, 31 years old? I'm 31 years old. I think you and I have the same month uh, birthday. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm April. You're okay. I'm March. I'm turning uh, 32 March 16th. So you know what? You might actually be 32 by the time this goes live. Then, yes, absolutely. Per se. So <laughs> you're 32 years old and the word retired is officially associated with your life. Is that a weird feeling? It is a very weird feeling to have because for me, and I, I, I've played wheelchair tennis for, for so long. And, um, and I think one of the unique things about tennis is you can say you're retired, but it's a, it's a sport for life. It's not like football or or you know race car driving or or any sport that you you're either in or you're out. You know, um, tennis players are are players that play up until their 80s, 90s. You know, it's a sport for life. Um, what I what I retired from was basically Canada's national team, which basically I was an amateur athlete, and I feel like I've retired. Um, from being an amateur athlete. That's not to say I can't play tournaments anywhere in the world. There's no there's no stopping you from playing a tournament. It's tennis after all. It's open for everyone. Um, but I, I've retired from the opportunities that are given to an amateur athlete in this country. Would you say you're about a year into retirement per se? Well, I retired just after the Toronto 2015 Para Pan oh, Am Games. So that's about that was, eight or nine months. Then, yeah, exactly. So it still feels kind of raw. So I officially announced it in October 2015. And here we are in March and, you know, the weather is starting to warm up a bit. And, uh, and now you're, you're still in great shape. So you're in that position where you're like, you know, I could pick up the racket and pick up where I left off. I, yeah, absolutely. I, st- I but I still play. That's the thing. It's, it's something that I feel is important wheelchair tennis, um, to someone who has a disability and, and that's to stay active. I think, um, you know, when you're in a wheelchair and, and you've known me, uh, my, you know, for a very long time, you've known that I've always been active and that's who I am. And, just because I've retired from uh, the competitive side of tennis, it doesn't mean that I don't want to play recreationally or or play the odd tournament or, or you know or do something like that. It just means it's not my full time job anymore. So let's run through some of your accolades then, because you traveled across the world, played in multiple tournaments. Uh, I mean, what are some of the accolades that stand out the most? Why don't I start with the most recent and then okay, sort of work my it. way back? So. Um, at the Toronto 2015 Games, um, I, along with my doubles partner, Philippe Bedard, we won Canada's first uh, international medal in wheelchair tennis. We won the bronze over Team United States. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And, and Team USA at the time, they were the defending gold medalists. And 
We had just come off of a heartbreaking uh, loss to Team Brazil, who ended up with the silver. Um, and we bounced back. We came away with um, with the bronze. We were very proud of that. I ended up hitting the winning shot, um, and I dropped the racket after hitting the winning <laughs> shot, and, and I pretty much retired on the spot. You know, so that was uh, that was an that was an amazing thing. I think it was the best thing that had happened in Canadian wheelchair tennis history, just to get that international level uh, medal. It, it's something that it was an honor, and you know, we both put in a lot of hard work. Um, and then prior to that. You know, obviously being at multiple tournaments and and getting my ranking to number one in Canada um, for the last five years was was a was always a goal from the beginning, from when I first picked up the racket. Um, going to the London 2012 Paralympics, um, fantastic experience. London did a tremendous job uh, running the games, and uh, um, you know, getting to represent Canada at those games was fantastic. And then even before that, you know, getting to go to the 2011 Pan Am Games and. And obviously getting to travel the world and having to see places like Turkey and South Korea and, uh, you know, South Africa, all across the United States and Europe. I mean, I've seen the world in the last five years more than I ever thought I would. And uh, it's, it's, it's been quite the amazing thing to, to say it's all over now, to be honest with you. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where did all of this start? Well, I had always been involved in sports from the get-go. I was born with a, a spinal tumor. Uh, the spinal tumor was successfully removed, but it ended up uh, causing me to have a partial paralysis. So basically, by the age of six or seven, uh, I got my first wheelchair. And when most people are learning, you know, all these different skills, uh, you know, running, jumping, hopping, I was doing all those things in a wheelchair. And I started to develop um, skills in elementary school, doing you know track and field, and uh, playing sports with able-bodied you know students. And I had some great gym teachers that. Um, looked at me and they didn't, you know, they basically said, oh, Joel can do everything. And my parents pushed me. And so I started getting involved in a lot of um, a lot of sports at a very young age until I discovered wheelchair tennis at the age of 13. Um, I was introduced to it by a, a former top Canadian ranked player, Frank Peter Jr. Um, Frank had actually worked with my father for the city of Hamilton for um, a number of years. And uh, when my dad discovered that, oh, He's a wheelchair tennis player. Maybe I'll send my son to hit with him. And I, I took to it right away. And um, I think it was an eye-opening experience because at the time I I was just hitting with – I was just playing sports with uh, with other junior, you know, disabled players. And when I first saw Frank, uh, what was remarkable about it was not only that he was able to hit the tennis ball and um, do all these cool things in a, in, a, in a wheelchair, but he was completely independent. He was – he was very, uh, you know, very remarkable for me as a young kid and impressionable kid to see someone um, who was an independent adult. And I think one of the great things about wheelchair tennis um, that made it unique is that you can play the sport with able-bodied people. And so for all, you know, throughout my childhood, I always wanted to play with my brother and my friends. I didn't want to have to do stuff separately. Um, and I think one of the unique things about wheelchair tennis is that you can play it with someone who does not have a disability that you would play if I was to play you, Vic. Um, you'd kick my ass. Well, maybe, but I, I, I'd like to think so. But um, you would play with one bounce and I would play with two. And so the, the sport really works seamlessly and that you can play it with everyone. And I think that's one of the unique things that I, I like to share about wheelchair tennis is that, or tennis in general, is that it is a sport for everyone. Tell us where you grew up then. As you mentioned, your father was working for the city of Hamilton. You're from the area? I grew up in a very small uh, rural setting in Flamborough. So if you know where Flamborough Downs is. Uh, uh, I don't know. 
So basically that's where, that's where racehorsing is. We grew up basically close to that. Um, I went to Ancaster High School. Okay. You, sure. you do know where Ancaster is. I'm, Ancaster, I'm no. Suburb of, <laughs> suburb of Hamilton. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I grew up around that area, and uh, I started training in the Niagara region. Um, went to uh, Niagara Tennis Academy in Vineland. Great wineries around that area if you're interested. <laughs> um, but I think one of, the, uh, one of the other reasons that was great about, you know, training and competing in uh, the Niagara region is that it brought me to Brock University as part of the sports management program where, uh, where you and I met. And tell us about your time there at Brock. I mean, the program, what brought you to that specific program? Well, I mean, first of, first of all, what brought me to Brock University obviously was the sports management program. I'd always been in, um, interested in getting involved in the sports industry. Um, at that time, I was progressing in tennis, so a lot of things were happening at the same time. I was an amateur athlete, but I was also learning about the sports industry. But what was really important for myself and my family is that Brock being a relatively new school built in the 60s is that it was very wheelchair accessible. Um, it was very easy for me to get around uh, to different parts of the campus. Whereas, you know, you go to an older setting like McMaster and, and University of Western Ontario, not as accessible as Brock. So I think that's one of the great things about Brock University is, is how accessible it was for me. Um, and again, that was the first time I'd moved away from home. And being someone in a wheelchair who, you know, you're, you're trying new things on your own, you you're learning how to do, you know, all, all these crazy things and, and gaining your independence. I think it was the right setting for me to be a Brock. Um, but obviously, more importantly, being part of the sports management program, which um, introduces you to so many different uh, facets of, of the industry. And you find that probably made you uh, a lot smarter as you became kind of like the sort of like your own brand, per se. We were talking about that earlier. Yes. And uh, I think one of the great things is learning about, for me, it was learning about sport policy. Because it was like, you know, you're learning about all these anti-doping things and you're learning about the funding system. Well, I was actually getting those, uh, getting those doping tests eventually and, and getting uh, an education in, in, in sport funding and, and obviously seeing a lot of the challenges faced as an athlete uh, with that. How did you balance school and tennis at the same time? Because imagine, imagine you started school, you're still doing tennis on the side but your tennis career started to take off to the point where they were like, well, Joel, we've got another tournament for you. You were successful here. This is going to, this is going to proliferate. I'm not sure you could say this is a regret, but I think I didn't pursue tennis hard enough in university. I think I really could have done a lot more. I had uh, the support of Brock university, you know, attending certain tournaments here and there. Most of my tournaments were held in the summer that I would attend. So basically I would make it sort of like a spring summer thing where, Oh, from September to you know April, I'll focus on school. Um, maybe I'll train a couple times a week, but I won't make it my full time gig. And I feel like if I had made it more of a full time uh, gig opportunity, I, I would have probably progressed further in the sport quicker. Whereas I think by by the time fourth year was happening, that's when wow things are starting to happen. But you know I kind of want a job. I kind of want to do all all the things that my peers are doing. So. Um, basically when I left Brock, um, I went right to Sheridan, uh, for their, uh, marketing program, um, a post-grad marketing program. And, uh, then I got, uh, hired from there right into the financial industry. And, uh, again, it was, it, wheelchair tennis was kind of like this back burner thing that obviously it was still a dream, but I realized, I think it, it took a while to, for me to realize, okay, you can't do this half-assed. You have to go full throttle. You have to dedicate your entire life to being an athlete. And I think that's what it takes nowadays. So you left the job you had in the financial uh, services in industry, uh, and then you went full-time into tennis. How did that go? Like, tell us how that progressed. 
Well, was it a lot of training, then the tournaments, or did you just jump right into tournaments? How did that go? While working in the financial industry, I was attend. This was the thing. I was attending a lot of tournaments. I was starting to go to like 12 tournaments in a year, knowing that I didn't have a lot of vacation time, but I would leave for a tournament on like a Wednesday night, oh, get there super late. I would go to a place like Dallas, get into Dallas late, play a match the next morning. Uh, and then I would have to take a red eye back on like a Sunday night, try to get to work by Monday. In no way you can possibly, I, I was drained, uh, both physically and emotionally. Just, you can't possibly prepare for a tournament properly if you just get there a couple hours before your first match. I mean, it's, it's so a joke. you, would you say that that probably wasn't the more successful portion of your career when exactly, you're exactly, exactly. So, um, I think there were a lot of coaches and a lot of tennis Canada administrators that, um, had always stressed that, you know, we need to see a little bit more dedication out of you. I think everyone understood the situation that, you know, Joel's, you know, pursuing his career. Um, but, you know, I think there there came a point where I started progressing slow enough and steadily that I felt, okay, if I just focus entirely on tennis, I think things could ramp up quickly. So basically, um, and this was 2011, or sorry, 2010, I decide okay, I'm going to go for the London 2012 Paralympics. I told my employer my plan. Um, I had asked for support. Um, unfortunately, they didn't want to treat me any differently um, from, you know, another uh, another employee. And why would they? Because, you know, they, you know, weren't exactly an Olympic sponsor or, or anything like that. So I had to take a leave of absence. And so I took a leave of absence in March 2011. And at the time, I was number five in Canada outside the top 100 players in the world. In order to qualify for the London 2012 Paralympics, I had to get to the top 46 in the world and number one in Canada. And I immediately, within a week of me leaving my job, I went to Puerto Rico, won a tournament, um, which was great. But then I noticed my I, I was just not fit and I struggled and um, I, I basically wasn't selected to go to the World Team Cup, which is basically, if you know tennis, it's like it's like the Davis Cup or the or the Fed Cup equivalent for wheelchair tennis they selected four players ahead of me to go. And that was an eye-opening experience. So from that point on, um, I hired another tennis coach. I, you know, worked with a mental trainer. I basically treated every day like a full-time job, like get up, go to the gym. Let's do two a days, you know, on the tennis court. Let's take naps. Let's eat properly. Let's get really fit. And I think I bulked up. I, I gained more energy. And um, by that summer, I rose to number one in Canada. And how do the rankings work then? Like every time you win, do you move up? Like what has to happen? Because I imagine apart from you finding success, the people ranked ahead of you have to find uh, a lack of success or Well, I think, I think it's interesting because the tennis rankings fluctuate every week. They're, it's a cumulative um, ranking structure in that it's based over a 52-week uh, tennis season. And that's the crazy thing about our sport is that it's played every month, almost every week at some point in the year, it's played somewhere in the world. And so you have to make your own off season. So yes, exactly. So you have to basically strategize that um, the rankings are based off of your best nine tournaments. What if you don't do uh, well in, in 12, in, in nine of them, you know, or you have to go to 15 then, you know, do you understand? Like, so I they, see what you're saying. They, it's kind you, of they like... take your best nine tournaments. So if I went to 20, that gives me a way better shot to have my best nine results because I can have a few throwaway tournaments in, in Alabama or in California or in England, um, knowing that I've done really well in Turkey, South Africa, you know, so you really have to look at, um, you know, the, the allotted points in a given tournament. And again, rankings are very complicated. So it also depends on the level of the tournament. 
So if I was to win the U.S. Open, I would get a ton of points. Um, but if I won a tournament in in Windsor, um, you know, I'm not going to get as many points, obviously. While this is all happening, one thing I really find fascinating is you and I both grew up with social media uh, in our personal lives, just as personal accounts that we use to share things with people, to interact with them. And then in 2011, I guess when you make this when you make this jump in your tennis career, you start to become a bit of your own brand at the beginning. So how did you kind of juggle that a bit? Obviously, Twitter when it came about, I was just interested in learning about the latest trades that happened in, in baseball. That's that's what I use Twitter for. And um, but I think as a as an amateur athlete, you start realizing that things like Twitter, Instagram, um, you know, creating your own blogs or websites, they can actually help you elevate your brand, which is incredibly important because sponsorship is, is, is important for an athlete. I mean, to break it down, Victor, we would get $18,000 from the Canadian government. That's through Sport Canada. Um, I would get an additional $6,000 from the Quest for Gold lottery fund, which is the Ontario government uh, through the OLG. I would also get some funding through Tennis Canada for coaching and tournaments and, and other expenses. And then you'd have a bit of prize money, not nearly enough. And basically after that, you're on your own. If I'm playing 18 tournaments in 2011 and 20 in 2012, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to fund my, myself. So I think I started realizing you know, it was important for me to build my brand and what I value and what companies would value. And that's why I started to really focus more on the social media aspect of it. Did you have a moment though where you're on say Twitter or Facebook? We'll pick on Twitter because I know that's a much more wide open platform where you started to notice all of a sudden people following you and you looked at the people following you and you said, okay, these people seem to be more interested in Joel Demby, the athlete, rather than just Joel Demby, the baseball fan talking about trades. Well, I think the one thing I realized that most of my followers on Twitter, I had met them. Like we had connected or networked at some event or done something together, you know, whether it was through the tennis community or whether it was through the disability community. Um, I, I feel like they wanted to follow me for my results. And I think the one interesting thing about wheelchair tennis is that at the time, it's getting better now with Tennis Canada supporting wheelchair tennis initiatives a little bit more. But it would be hard for someone like you to follow, you know, how I'm doing in, in, in Britain or how I'm doing at a tournament, uh, you know, halfway across the world. So what I would do is I would continually update my my progress and um, build to something, build it the momentum towards London and say the journey towards the London 2012 games and make it sort of like a story. And, and while you were playing, then did you have someone live tweeting your results? Absolutely not. No, no it was always me. Far. No, I didn't go that far. <laughs> I I do know that there are um, there are certain people and, and and that give over their Twitter account to. Um, a company or a media or, or, and I'm sure you know a little bit more about this. Or just I, hand a phone to a family I, member and say, just don't say anything offensive. <laughs> oh, if I, my family members know nothing about Twitter. They, <laughs> they're very old school when it comes to most of that stuff. So it was mostly me controlling the media. But you bring up an interesting point when you said that there was um, a lack of coverage of wheelchair tennis and people had to gravitate towards you to find it. You kind of unofficially wore the hat of journalist for your sport where you were reporting on it. A lot, not not many outlets or not many athletes can say that per se. Well, I think when you when you play an amateur sport and one that is unique like wheelchair tennis, whether it's wheelchair tennis or pentathlon, you have to sort of add, add, you have to be an advocate for your sport. And I think that's so important because I think we're in a position and I say this amongst all the wheelchair tennis players in Canada, we're in a position to promote physical activity and I kind of saw the big picture in it. I didn't just see it as oh, I won in 
I wanted this really small tournament in Vancouver or one in Quebec City. Like nobody really, nobody, to be honest, there's not many people other than, you know, people cheering for Canadian tennis that really care about the day-to-day results. They want to hear more about what the story is. What, what are you, what you're doing some incredible things in a wheelchair, Joel. Look at what you're promoting. You're, you're promoting physical activity, adversity, all these things that are great for kids to learn about, great for, great for adults. Um, and I felt like that was the big picture. I felt like just being part of the, you know, the grassroots tennis community and tennis can be played by anyone. That's something that I really felt like was more important than my day-to-day, week-to-week results on, on the competitive tennis scene. And so which social media platform did you find was most effective in communicating that message? For sure, Twitter, because the Canadian Paralympic Committee um, started getting really active in Twitter as I started joining Twitter. And so basically they would promote things and I would do images. And, and so there'd be a lot of back and forth between uh, the CPC, um, you know, CBC Sports is very active on Twitter, um, myself, Tennis Canada, Ontario Wheelchair Sports Association, uh, the OTA, Ontario Tennis Association. There's lots of, lots of um, NSOs that are actively pursuing um, the online social media to, pers- to promote tennis. And, and I think that's something that I was a part of. And did you have to get any media training when you start to get to that level about how to deal with reporters, how to handle your social media account? Or was it kind of like you just figuring it out as you go along? That's funny because I had that similar question. Joel, have you had media training? Because you, you know. Because you- absolutely you sound like you've had media training. Uh, I hadn't. Apart I, from a number of interviews I'm sure you've given as well I, as experience. I think it just progressed over time because as you started doing a little better, um, whether it was on the tennis court or, you know, professionally, I just was able to talk to more people. And whether it was, you know, getting coverage in the Toronto Star or um, appearing on Canada AM, you know, I, I just kind of picked it up. And, uh, you know, the only media training I had is for my current position. And, and it, that was, it was honestly a great learning experience um, for me to just get a little bit of it. But I think it's something that um, I sort of developed uh, naturally over time. That is a perfect segue. I uh, wanted to ask you next, now that you're retired, what are you up to now? Well, during the retirement process, I kind of knew sort of the direction I was going to be headed. And that was to you know, get back into the working world. And I felt like the RBC Olympians program was the best way for me to do that. Um, RBC already being a sponsor of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Um, they've sponsored, you know, this, you know, the, the Olympic movement in Canada since 1947. I felt it would be good for my brand. It, I felt I could, you know, be a good asset to the RBC team. Uh, so it's been a really cool thing. And basically you act as a community ambassador for RBC and you, you, you work with a lot of amateur athletic groups. Um, but you also gain valuable working experience too in an office. And I'm able to work downtown Toronto now in marketing and sponsorship, um, and get back to sort of the skills that I was gaining in my, in my old life before tennis came along, obviously. The Olympics and the Paralympics are coming up in Rio this summer. Will we see you back there? Obviously not playing, but in some capacity for tennis Canada. Oh, I I mean, if anything, I want to promote a lot of the, uh, um, tennis players that are going to be going to the games. And obviously, um, hopefully, you know, shine a light, a positive light on the games because I, I, I mean, all you hear is negativity and I can tell you when you're an athlete, you just, you have to ignore it. You have to sort of just do what you need to do to get the job done on the tennis court. And I think I'll try to hopefully provide a more positive light on the games because obviously it's, there's been nothing but controversy surrounding the venues and, and sites like that. So it's been, uh, 
yeah, and you have to you have to face that. Brazil's taken a bit of a kicking. They even had that controversy two years ago, leading up to the World Cup, whether or not that stadium would be completed. So we'll have to wait and see what yes. happens there. Uh, Joel, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. I'm going to close with the same question I ask everyone. If you weren't in media or doing anything within marketing, what do you think you'd be up to? I've done a lot. You know, I've I've worked in, you know, I've worked in the financial sector. I've given lots of interviews. I've done blogs. I've done all these things. I think I'm 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 pretty much doing what I want to do right now. But if if I had none of this, if I didn't have wheelchair tennis, if I didn't have, um, you know, the need for uh, the need to be active and, and, and the want and desire to do that. Uh, maybe like a race car driver. I think I've always Ooh, liked good doing answer. things fast, you know, <laughs> and I know, and I know you you and I like, uh, a little bit about, uh, talk talking about the sports, uh, sports car industry, but, uh, it would be nice to be a race car driver. Awesome. Joel, thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at VicGenova.